Father, I ask the words of my mouth and the meditation, indeed, of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Epiphany. Epiphany, a season of adoration and mission uh, for us as individual followers of Jesus, uh, but also for us together as a church. How do we engage in adoration as a church? How do we engage in mission together as a church? Archbishop William Temple once said the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. You see, mission is not something we do on our own. It's something we do together. And it's not something that as the church, we can simply outsource to great specialized ministries. We engage in the mission of God together as the people of God, indwelled, empowered, and led by His Spirit. And so to help us reflect on this, really during the rest of the Epiphany season, um, it was going to be most of January and February, but we got snow and ice last week. So uh, most of February and the rest of January will be in the latter part of 1 Corinthians. Um, and in terms of importance and space and attention, uh, the church in Corinth, I would say, could be considered the most important church in the entire New Testament. Think about it. We have two massive letters from Paul. Uh, more is written to this one church in the New Testament than to any other church that we have on record. There's almost 30 chapters as part of a back and forth correspondence with the Apostle Paul. And just think about other uh, letters in the New Testament. For example, the church in Galatia, Paul's first letter, six chapters. Uh, the churches in and around Ephesus, six chapters. Philippi, four chapters. Uh, the second runner-up uh, would be the church in Rome, which is interesting because you would think it would be the most important city in the known world. Um, it gets 16 chapters, so about half, right? And I was trying to think, okay, how do you put that in perspective? That, that Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians are like twice as big as Romans. I was like, oh, it's kind of like, you know, 33 to 18. <laughs> Those with ears to hear, let them hear. <laughs> this is a massively important church in the New Testament. And it's tremendously helpful uh, for understanding what it means to be the church today and to engage uh, in worship and mission. Uh, most helpfully is they were a mess. Uh, they're not a perfect church, and so there's lots of instructions for them um, that we can eavesdrop on and apply in our own lives and our own lives together um, as a church. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at this key section in 1 Corinthians 12. It focuses on the unity of the church amidst the diversity of its individual members. Uh, without, without a proper understanding of this, the church um, cannot function in a healthy manner, certainly cannot engage in mission together if we don't understand how uh, we're drawn and connected uh, with one another in the body of Christ. Um, and so since we're going to spend, again, we're going to spend from now till about March in 1 Corinthians, um, I want to do two main things today. Uh, first, I just want to set the context. I want to introduce you to this city and this church so that we understand uh, what really Paul's writing about and who he's writing to um, in 1 Corinthians. And then secondly, we're just going to look at this one key image that Paul has here, the church as the body of Christ. Sound good? All right, first, the chaotic context of, of crazy Corinth. Uh, to understand this context, I would say there's three things to highlight. First, 
the communication between Paul and this church. Second, the cultural milieu. This is an opportunity-filled, cosmopolitan Greco-Roman city. It controls a major trade route and was in the midst of being rebuilt. It had been destroyed, and it was a city coming up in the world. Uh, rebuilding, there was opportunity everywhere. And then we need to know something about the various crises that this church here in Corinth faced. So first, the communication. I've already said the communication here is extensive. There's so much in the Bible between uh, Paul and the church in Corinth in these two letters. If you read through them, you'll actually see they're not the only letters that were written back and forth between Paul and Corinth. Uh, there are a number of letters that the Corinthians wrote to Paul asking questions about key issues. Uh, there's at least two more letters that Paul sent to them. One, it says, is a harsh letter. Um, and, and you know what this is. You've all sent an email that you regretted sending, right? You hit send because it felt good. And man, I don't know how helpful that was. It was one of those kind of letters. Um, we, we actually learn in First and Second Corinthians that when they met, there's conflict. There's conflict between Paul uh, and this church. And I would just say that before you think that's a bad thing, um, I would say their conflict is healthy. Their conflict is needed. It's rooted in the deep bonds between Paul and this church. You see, they know each other well. And they know each other well enough to move beyond surface chit-chat to the deep things of God. It's not theology in general. It's what they need because they know one another. And it's how the gospel impacts their actual lives and the strengths and weaknesses of this church and the real problems that they face. It's that kind of letter. Second, the cultural milieu of this cosmopolitan city. Uh, you need to know that Corinth was famous in the first century. Um, and when you actually hear a little bit about the city, then what they faced in these letters makes a little bit more sense. Because I would say that the issues uh, the vices and their culture had seeped into the church very clearly. Um, or maybe another way to think of it is the cultural waters they swam in before becoming Christians, well, it still formed their default ways of thinking and behaving and relating to one another more so than the gospel and more so than the new work of the Spirit in their lives. Um, the reason Corinth was so famous and so wealthy is it was a coastal city. I mean, I don't know how well you know the geography and the topography of, of Greece. Um, I've learned a little bit along the way. But Corinth is about, it's south, uh, southwest of Athens. And it sits on this isthmus. I think that's how you say that word. I can never say that word correctly. Can you say that word correctly? An isthmus. Little, it's a little place of land between this water. Um, and basically, there, there's about 10 or 15 miles of land between these two major bodies of water um, that connect kind of the eastern part of the Mediterranean region to the western part of the Mediterranean region. Um, and if you could figure out a way to, to kind of bridge that gap, then that would save you hundreds of miles um, going south around Greece. And uh, you don't have to risk those tricky waters. You don't have to risk uh, banditry and pirates and all that stuff. So they finally figured out a way to do this. You see, ships would pull up to Corinth either on the east or the west side, and they built this massive uh, land bridge, concrete and stone, and they would pull a ship out of the water, and then they would get, I don't know, carts, and they would drag it across land and plop it in the other body of water. 
So again, they're saving hundreds of miles in all of this time and resources. Uh, but you can imagine that's a pretty labor-intensive process, right? And so this is why Corinth was so famous. It's because ships would come from all over the known world and they would dock and they would get pulled out of the water to be transported across the land bridge, but that took a while. And so all of these sailors and all of these merchants had nothing but time and money to burn. And so Corinth became this place where you could kill time while the cargo was transported. It became famous as a place of wealth and pleasure and debauchery. Uh, there's a major temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And that's how the sailors and merchants would tend to pass their time. It was such a sensual city. Uh, there's a slang term in, in Greek. It sounds kind of like Corinthianize. Like if you were to Corinthianize, that meant you were to actually practice fornication. It'd be like us saying, hey, that person over there, they're Vegasing. You know what I mean if I say they're Vegasing. You have a vague idea. That's the kind of city that we have here in Corinth. And so it's actually not a surprise that you read through this letter and it's filled with scandal and immorality and confusion over these issues. That was the, the waters that they swam in. That was normal in Corinth. And so speaking of those crises, in addition to, to scandal and immorality, um, they're all over the place. They're a mess. Um, they, they have massive division in the church, different groups that think different things. They're, they're, they come at the world. They look at it through a different lens and angle. Uh, they have favoritism towards different leaders. I was thinking about that for, for our church, St. Thomas. Um, you know, if you kind of look at the last few years, for a while, I was our only clergy here on staff, and I did uh, too much, all the preaching and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and now we look around, and the Lord has brought a team together. Um, and it's great because we're not the same. There's different gifts. There's different talents. People are going to resonate with different people. Uh, but when that happened in Corinth, they started choosing favorites. So instead of going, hey, aren't we blessed with this team? They're like, oh, that's my favorite. I want that person to do this. You, we, we know this tendency, right? Um, ask Stetson Bennett and JT Daniels about this tendency. This is normal ways that we operate um, as we think about things. Um, and the other thing is that there is uh, legal disputes. They're taking each other to court. They're, they're fighting over ethics. There's jealousy and strife and arrogance. Um, they don't know how to do Holy Communion. Uh, luckily, Paul gives them enough instruction that a lot of those problems were kind of solved. And so we are the beneficiaries of Paul's instruction here. Um, there's tons of confusion over spiritual gifts. That still persists today. And how worship should be conducted in public. Um, translation, they're a mess. Uh, but despite this mess, um, don't miss it, that Paul opens the letter, 1 Corinthians, he writes to those, um, not those who are a mess, he says to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. He extends grace and peace. He gives thanks to God for uh, the Lord's work in their lives. He thanks the Lord that, that God has given grace to, to this messy community. And one pastor scholar pointed out that they were a mess, but God loved them anyways. Um, how comforting. <laughs> and that sometimes we need to watch an exasperated apostle talking to a rebellious and divisive church with tenderness and affection. And the reason Paul can do that is he has a faith that believes in their transformation. 
and that that transformation can only come from the power of the Spirit, the example of Christ and the faithfulness of God, things they can't mess up and that aren't part of their mess. 1 Corinthians 12, this chapter is all about spiritual gifts, uh, how the body of Christ functions, how, how it's united and diverse. Um, and the basis of that unity is the Holy Spirit that God is at work in their midst. God is doing something to join them together. God has a mission and purpose for them. And it's just helpful to know, because we struggle with disunity, don't we? And divisiveness and division. And they didn't call for a council on unity or tolerance or anything like that. Paul just said, hey, remember, um, the Spirit's doing something, and you should live in light of that reality. That he's joined you together despite all of your difference and all of your diversity. And so he gives us this image, the church as the body of Christ. Um, it doesn't actually need a lot of illustration. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Um, look at the bookends of the passage we're looking at. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. This image of a body functioning and working in harmony. Um, again, it says the reason for that is that whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, um, you're united by the Spirit. And then verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In between those bookends, there's this uh, a playful, almost a fanciful dialogue. We see a talking foot, makes an appearance here. Um, there's a petulant ear, uh, an eye speaking to the hand, the hand, uh, the head speaking to a foot. Paul says there are parts of the body that have been degraded in their culture. I think that has to do with the sensuality. He says, these are held in, these have been degraded and such. Uh, he said, we're going to hold them in higher honor. And there are some things that because they're so honorable, we have to actually exercise discretion and modesty when we think and talk about them. Um, he, he's hitting all these different things. Um, and, and I had a little bit of fun this week, I'll admit. I, I read some of the early interpretations of 1 Corinthians uh, from like the first, you know, first, second, third century of the church fathers. And they had so much fun with thinking through, why did Paul pick this body part? Um, what is it about the ear? What is it about a foot? All this different stuff. And it, it's fun. We can tease out all the implications of that. But I want to focus a little more broadly. Um, I, I was reading this this week, and Bishop N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes were really helpful. Uh, they pointed out that Paul doesn't just choose this illustration at random of a body. Uh, see, the idea of a community being one body, that's everywhere in the first century. If you read a Greco-Roman statesman, a politician, a city official, they're talking about this community is one body. That's commonplace language. But what's interesting is that in the first century, when the image was used of being one body, uh, do you know why it was used? It was mainly used by those uh, who had power and honor um, to help keep those who did not in their place. So, so the idea would be something like this. Hey, this community, this city, we're one body. And man, you drew the short straw, you're the foot. But you shouldn't be mad about it. And you certainly shouldn't try to do anything about it because you're the foot. Someone's gotta be the foot. You drew the short straw. Uh, you're the foot, sorry. And the wealthy and the powerful would use this like a bludgeon for those who were less honorable and less fortunate. And so I just think it's so interesting that Paul flips that on its head. Uh, Paul isn't using this 
um, to go, hey, you're a foot, sorry, deal with it. He's saying, hey, if you're looking down on the foot, you shouldn't. <laughs> and if you think you're something, humble yourselves. See how God has put this body together, not to, not to make it better for you as a better part, but for the whole thing to function in a healthy way. Um, that, that's what would have been in their, their mind as they heard this. And, and furthermore, Paul is writing, um, you know, I can't, he, he's steeped. He's steeped in the scriptures. And so when Paul says that the spirit is creating a new body, I can't help but think he has Genesis ringing in his ears. Um, and, and actually, that's not far-fetched because throughout 1 Corinthians, when there's a question, Paul goes back to Genesis time and time again. And so he says, hey, hey, God is making a new body. And actually, this is creation language. And this is new creation language. What it always meant to be made in the image of God. God is doing a new thing uh, in our midst. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright says, God is creating a new, true humanity in and through the Messiah. And as such, the church is to be the place where together we learn how to be God's genuinely human beings. Worshiping God, serving him by reflecting his image in the world, doing adoration and mission, epiphany stuff as his people. So again, I don't think the image is unclear, but some clear questions and implications do emerge as we think about this. For Paul, um, there are both different members and there's one body. There's diversity and there's unity. Um, there's the group and there's the individual. And he holds them in perfect balance and harmony, doesn't he? But it's really hard to find a time in church history where we have actually held these in balance and harmony. Uh, we usually fall off one side or the other of this balance beam, right? I mean, there's been times in the church where we've said, hey, your personal faith, it doesn't even matter. It's all about the church. That's all that's important right now. And when that happens, predictably, the pendulum just swings. And it says the church doesn't matter at all. It's all about your personal faith. Me and Jesus. Um, and again, I think that we see this swing back and forth through church history. I think different uh, temperaments and different cultures are more susceptible to, to one of these errors than the other. Um, but if I had to guess what our struggle would be as, as Christians in America here in the Bible Belt, oh, my observation is we struggle much more I was realizing we're part of a larger church than with having an individualized faith, especially here kind of in the Bible Belt. Uh, for us, we, we struggle to connect and commit to a church body. Um, we struggle with ideas like church membership. Um, that, that term, actually, do you know it comes from here? Like the idea of being a church member is from 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says there's one body and many members. That's, that's what it's talking about. That's where this language even comes from. Um, and, and for us, the idea of belonging to a church can become optional and, and switchable. It's more like a personal accessory that we, we tailor to our own likes and dislikes. Um, I was thinking about like, you know, if you go to a, a mall and go to the food court, um, I don't know if that works in Athens. Our mall's a little interesting. Um, but you've been to a mall, right? That you would want to go to? Um, and you've been to the food court. And, you know, if you go with a family, it's great because then we don't have to actually do things together. Everyone gets to pick their own thing. And then we come back and make it kind of a buffet together. We, a lot of us will have that approach to church. 
And that makes sense when you're picking something you like, but it doesn't make sense when you're saying, here's how you're connected to a family. And here's what the Spirit has done uh, to, to put you together. Um, and I, I will say, just before we go further, just as a caveat, I know that there are many, um, and if you feel like you're not connected or ready to commit to a church, it's honestly because you've been burned. You were committed. You were connected. And someone or something sent you to the side. Maybe it was abuse, maybe it was sin, maybe it was just disagreement, I don't know. But I understand that you would say, hey, I might wait a little bit on this. I need to see, is this, is this a place where I can be part of things and belong? Maybe there was bad doctrine or, or maybe bad ethics. I don't know what it was. Um, but I would say that if, if that's you, I'm glad you're here. Um, and we hope this would be a place where you could find rest and you could find healing and you could even begin to hope in the church again. Um, we're not perfect <laughs> by any means, and we don't claim to be perfect, but we do hope to be healthy. Um, and we hope to be a place where people can come and again find rest and, and healing and hope again in the church. Um, as I think about this image, Paul's image, many members, one body, um, I want to throw out two things that occurred to me um, that, that might help us just, you know, think about how this might apply to our lives. Uh, two counterexamples. Um, two counterexamples from pop culture. And the first was inspired right here uh, by Paul when it says, what if there's only an eye? And I'm a Tolkien nerd. So when I hear there's only an eye, I have to think of the eye of Sauron. You know this, right? You've seen the movie, the big red eye. There's one place it's described. It says, concealed within his fortress, the, the Lord of Mordor, Sauron, he sees all his gaze Pierces cloud and shadow, earth and flesh, a great eye, lidless, wreathed in flame. You've probably seen that somewhere. Um, and it occurs to me, well, that's what it would be if the whole body is just one thing and wants everything else to be just like it. It's not an eye and a foot and a hand and an ear. It's just this one weird eye. And the grotesqueness of it is part of the point, that it doesn't work that way. Um, and actually, the, the idea that in the Lord of the Rings, Sauron actually can't go anywhere because he's got no feet. <laughs> he's just an eye. Um, and where I think this hits me in the church is, you know, I'm aware of my own gifting and temperament, things I like and don't like, things I think are helpful for the church. And it's really a temptation to go, I think everyone should be just like me and have my gifts and care about the things I care about. Well, that's kind of an eye of Sauron mentality where you want everything to just be this one eye and just like it. Um, the second, it's, it's a similar thing. It's also just a single body part. Uh, but the emphasis I always think about is the fact that it's disconnected from a body. Um, I'm talking, of course, about Thing from the Adams Family. You know Thing from the Adams Family? Uh, we have an intergenerational church. Luckily, the Adams Family comes up in every generation. Um, there were shows back when my parents were kids. There were movies when I was a kid. There are movies now again for my kids. They're their kids. I don't know why. It's not enduringly great. <laughs> it's very mediocre. But there's a character you may have seen. This character is called Thing. And it's just a hand and a wrist. And I always think of the wrist because when I look at that thing, what I realize is, oh, it's, it's disconnected. It's on its own. Um, and the kind of the, the comedy value of Thing as a character 
is thing, the hand will do things that other body parts are supposed to do. So the fingers will walk and the knuckles will wave and talk. And in the hand, disconnected, it's trying to do everything that the whole body is supposed to do. It doesn't work. Um, again, it's kind of, it's, it's dark comedy, but you just see how unnatural that actually is to be disconnected and doing those things. Friends, I think we have, that's the icon of American Christianity. It's individuals disconnected from the whole, trying to do everything on their own. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't go anywhere. You see, for these Corinthians, their problem is not just pride, looking down on other members or parts, but I think their real issue was a faulty self-sufficiency. Not just, I am better than you, but I don't need you. Like, thing, I'm fine on my own. I can figure out a way to make it work. Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, recently died, and he once said that a self-sufficient human being is subhuman. Um, I know this, that hits us weird as, as Americans, right? That a self-sufficient human being is subhuman because God has made us so that we need one another. And that's part of what Paul's teaching here. Here we have a picture of a body and not just any body, not a generic body, but the body of Christ working in wholeness and harmony. One body with different members fully aware of their difference, and then connected and committed to the whole. It's been said that bodies and churches only thrive when the full range of their members is recognized, released, and celebrated. And the interdependence is built in because God has designed it that way. And God has designed us that way. So a few questions just as we end. Um, like I said, since we had ice last week, I get to do a sermon and a half today. Just kind of fun. No. Um, no, I mean, my question would just be, as you think about these images and these counter images, um, do you feel like thing? I mean, do, you, do you feel disconnected? Um, are you a member or a member of a body? And, and we always encourage those who are exploring and visiting St. Thomas, I mean, don't be hasty with this decision. Spend time praying and getting to know us, getting to know this community. Uh, but if God is drawing you here, don't be afraid to commit and be part of it. Um, don't remain disconnected and, and kind of standoffish, just waiting to see uh, when to connect. Um, we, we have a membership class coming up in mid-February. If you've been exploring for a while, we'd love for you to come out to that and be able to answer some questions, see if God's calling you to connect here and be part of things here. There's information in the bulletin. You can talk to Deacon Tex about how to join up with that. Um, I would also say, honestly, our conviction is not just that you need to maybe commit to St. Thomas, but if not, you need to commit somewhere and be connected somewhere. So if you've been exploring this community for a little bit and would say, hey, there's something different that, that God is calling me to, talk to us about that. Um, there's great churches in town and we, we'd love to help you find a place where you can connect and be part of things. Because it's not just that we're trying to grow this body, but that for your health, you need to be connected. And God's working through all of these churches in town um, in, in his wisdom and in his grace and in uh, how the kingdom is, is growing here in our city. Um, secondly, if you are here and you are committed and you're a member, well, Paul's pretty clear that you have gifts that you've been given. And there's a function that you've been called to play uh, in this body. And I would just say, have you thought about how has God called you to serve? What gifts has he given you? Um, and this isn't just, hey, let me take my spiritual gifts inventory 
and figure out my personal ministry that's self-fulfilling to me. But where do your gifts line up with the needs of this church and the needs of this community? And I would say that's something that any of our team would love to sit down and talk and pray with you about. Uh, to think through how has God gifted you? What opportunities are there uh, to serve, to build up the body and contribute to the larger mission that God has set before us? We want to help you discern that. We, we want to help you uh, honor that and figure out a sustainable way to be part of serving in this parish family. Um, and of course, Paul says, hey, once you figure out what you're supposed to do and where you're gifted, like don't look down on the other stuff. Don't look down on other parts of the body and other gifts that are given to different people in the body because we're not self-sufficient and we're not omnicompetent. We can't do everything on our own, tempted as we are uh, to operate that way. And then maybe lastly, I would just say that all of this, over and over, Paul weaves in that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. With all of his talks of, of the body and different members and different functions and different gifts, the, the unifying thread is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's probably the best starting place, right? That we'll be open to what the Spirit wants to do in our midst, how the Holy Spirit is working uh, in and through us. Um, I don't know about you, I don't feel like I started the year at all. <laughs> I mean, January, it feels like January started, but then we had like snow and ice and a national championship and Omicron. It's just, it's been weird. Well, we can start the year now. And we can start the year asking the Holy Spirit, hey, how would you uh, fill and renew me and guide me in this year? And, and what are you doing in our church together? How are you calling me to be a part of that? Uh, St. Augustine says, For not everyone has all of the spiritual gifts. Some have these and others those. Although each has the, the gift, capital G, the gift himself, by whom the things proper to each one are divided, namely the Holy Spirit. That's what I want to leave you with today, that, that question. Not first what gift the Spirit has given us, but have we received the gift of the Spirit? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.